Hi, I'm Kara Oakleaf. And I'm Susie Rigdon. You're listening to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. Each season, we sit down with writers from across the genre spectrum, so subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. So Susie, welcome to 2022. Welcome back. Happy New Year. I know. (laughs) We survived 2021. (laughs) Thank goodness. Let's hope 2022 is easier on everybody. I, I know we've, um, we're still a ways away from beginning our new semester, but I'm curious at the beginning of the year, what, what are you excited to read this year? Well, let's see. Last year I did a lot of rereading just to kind of, you know, be kind of like a comfort food. So I found a lot of my old favorite books and did that. But, um, for this year, I'm actually kind of focused on improving my teaching game and my writing game, my digital creative writing game. That's what I teach at Mason, um, which uses kind of online tools. One of those tools is called Twine and Fall for the Book's actually done an event on this. So check out our YouTube channel. Um, so I've got this sweet new book called Twining, um, Critical and Creative Approaches to Hypertext Narratives. And that's by Anastasia Salter and Stuart Moulthrop. And it's I've, I've already read like a couple chapters and it has blown my mind. And I've been teaching this program for a couple of years now. So I'm super excited to dig in and write more um, nonlinear and multilinear narratives. How about you? Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm super terrified and intimidated by that, but it also sounds really <laughs> interesting. <laughs> so the, there are a couple of things that are coming out uh, this month that I'm really excited about. One is a, a short story collection by Gwen Kirby. It's called Shit Cassandra Saw. And it's, uh, it's a collection of short stories, but that, that, that title comes from a particular story about what the mythical Cassandra saw in the future, but didn't want to tell the Trojans because she was never believed. And it's a fantastic story. Um, So I'm I'm so excited that she has a collection coming out. And another uh, thing that I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading is um, Sequoia Nagamatsu's new novel. It's called How High We Go in the Dark. And it's, it's, you know, maybe appropriately or inappropriately um, for for this particular era, it's um, about a plague. Oh, uplifting. And it, right. Yeah. So very, very kind of speculative. But, um, you know, at the same time, it's I'm, I'm excited to read about a plague that is not COVID-19. So um, and, and hopefully escape into a very different kind of world, even though I, I, I think it's going to have a lot of, of interesting parallels to the time we're already living in. I think that's the beauty of of speculative writing and about speculative fiction. I mean, we've talked to a lot of really interesting authors kind of in the past. I mean, Karen Russell, who's one of my personal favorites, she is just the queen of speculative and magical realism. Yes. And, you know, that was really great. And then we also talked to Aisha Papacha Bujak, which, you know, the the first collection you talked about with like with the Trojan War, I was like, that makes me think of her collection right. we talked about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely connection, but also two like very different styles of writing, I think. So yeah, um, you know, today we're going to be talking with uh, Jim Peterson and, and a lot of his stuff is very, is, is very speculative too, and plays with, you know, the absurd or the magical. So I think he'll have some interesting things to say about this as well. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear what Jim's got to say. Well, we're excited to, to get into this with him. Um, Jim Peterson has published three poetry chapbooks and seven full-length collections of poetry. His newest short story collection is called The Sadness of Whirlwinds. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. So to start off, we'd love to ask you to read the prologue from your new short story collection, Pablo. Would you mind reading that for us? Not at all. I'd love to read it. Pablo. I opened my front door to let in some light and fresh air. A small dog wandered down the center of my street. 
I was immediately worried about him. On impulse, I grabbed my cap and some small dog treats left over from my deceased Jack Russell. This other dog poked his head in the gutter, meandered back out to the middle of the road, then over to the grassy shoulder on the other side, sniffing all the way, sometimes stopping to raise a leg and mark the spot. He appeared to me to have some Jack Russell characteristics, about 15 pounds, jaunty gait, moist, alert eyes, ears that flop forward, a white and brown patchwork coat. Clearly an independent individual. I kept my distance. He had no collar, but otherwise he appeared to be healthy. I followed him for block after block into a part of the town I'd never explored. At busy streets, he paused just off the curb, looked both ways until a gap opened, and then he'd dart across and continue his inquiries on a less busy side street. As smart and nosy as he was, I assumed he knew I was following him, but he didn't give me any attention, not even a glance. At last, he trotted into a front yard and disappeared around a house. A car was parked out front, a small house, but carefully maintained, curtains pulled. My stomach sank. I wasn't in the habit of walking uninvited onto the grounds of strangers. I crept into the alley between houses toward the fenced backyard where the dog appeared to be going. The fence was five feet high. Did he jump over the somewhat shorter gate? I saw the dog rolling in the grass at the feet of a woman who was sitting in a lawn chair facing away from me. I could see the long blonde hair on the back of her head and one bare foot of a cross leg dangling in the air. I checked around to make sure no one was observing. And then I watched for a while. The woman teased and praised the dog and he responded to her, letting go of tiny barks I could barely hear. I opened the gate and the latch made a distinct clink. The dog stopped his games and looked at me. The woman didn't move. I walked slowly across the yard, the dog watching, the woman silent and still, but obviously waiting. When I got close behind her, she said, Thomas? Yes, I said. Please sit down, she said. I sat in the lawn chair near hers. How did you know, I said. I knew you lived in this town. I sent Pablo to look for you, she said, nodding toward the dog. Pablo, I asked. Yes, he's a rascal, just like Picasso. Oh, I said, it's a good name. He says you were easy. What do you mean, I asked easy to lure away from your home. Uh, that's, that's not possible. Yet here you are. Maybe, I said. I named you Thomas because you doubt everything I say, she said. Obviously, she hadn't given me my name, but I let that go. She still had not looked at me, staring straight ahead, and it dawned on me. She was blind. Can you look at me, I asked. I am looking at you, she said, though she was still turned away from me. I am always looking at you. The dog barked once. Pablo wants to check you out, she said. Is that what he said? That's right. That's fine, I said. I'm a dog lover myself. The dog trotted over to me, jumped in my lap, and brought his curious face close to mine, looking steadily into my eyes. He gave my face a good lick 
I was okay with that. Then he started sniffing around on my chest. I pulled out a treat from my shirt pocket and he extracted it nimbly from my fingers. He jumped down and sat attentively in front of her again, munching. You've aged well, she said. Margaret, I said, and she smiled. Her awareness on me, almost like the tips of fingers. I remembered her name, but nothing else. Don't worry, she said. You will never remember me. That way, we can begin again. We sat quietly together for an hour, and then, slowly, we began. Thanks so much, Jim. I'm always really curious about how writers assemble a short story collection, how they decide on the order of, the sh- of their stories. And with this, I was really curious about how you chose this story as, as a prologue specifically. Well, that's a, to me an interesting question because I, I really enjoy it when a writer has arranged things in an interesting way. And so I wanted to do that. But secondly, most of my publication is in poetry. I've published two books of fiction, but mostly poetry. And over the years, it's become more and more important if you want to publish your collections that you or have a, 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 a sort of a thematic organization of your book. So I was just so used to doing that, that with this book, and a lot of these stories are very short, not all of them, but a lot of them, I just sensed that there was something going on there that if I, if I looked closely enough, I would find the right movement of the whole thing together as a piece. So that's what I was trying to do. So I wanted a prologue and uh, also an epilogue. This other book also has an epilogue. And I wanted them to echo each other in some way, you know? So the prologue is uh, a man who is finding a woman, just to put it simply. And in the epilogue, it's a woman who is finding a man. And so they kind of, I felt like those were nice bookends. And now these things were written. They were just written in a very organic way. I didn't write it for the prologue or for the epilogue. It was afterwards when I had the stuff together that I began to see this, the shape of the, of the book. And uh, like the rest, the rest of the book, uh, because most of the book stories are, have to do with uh, primarily the relationships between men and women in some way or another, I, I've kind of got the book set up to, to highlight things that are going on in the stories relative to that, even though there are different sections of the book for example, the three the three stories in what is it called the lair of herself? The three stories in that section uh, are very different stylistically from the stories in this first section. I think. I, I feel like that's great when when it happens that that you have these stories that are already written, and it's only after after you're looking at them as a whole that you realize that maybe you were doing something that you didn't necessarily expect, and you realize you do have these bookends. I think that's great when that happens. Yeah, I agree. Uh, to me, writing. Most of what's happening when you're writing is very unconscious. You know, you think you know what your story is about, maybe just for an example, (laughs) and you only discover what it's about when you get to the end of it, you know, what it's actually about. And uh, so I love that aspect of writing. I'm glad that you brought up those different threads and the very different styles of stories. We're going to absolutely ask you about those, but I want to kind of start on the very non-traditional side of things, the, um, the stories that include magic or surrealism or absurdism. And I, I was really struck by how in these stories, an everyday activity like going for a walk or reading a book or meeting a stranger can 
flip the world right on its head and sometimes end like in like almost a literal masquerade. Can you talk about this approach to storytelling and how you use these types of elements to move the story forward? First of all, I've, I've always been drawn to the unusual, to the to the strange and the unusual and the surreal. Uh, I'm a fan of the surrealists, you know, and the magical realism. I'm my favorite writers. I read everything, but my favorite writers are those who use magical realism. And there's so many different ways to apply it. It's so interesting, interesting to see how people uh, approach that differently. So I, I can't, I do write a few naturalistic stories, but for the most part, there's always some little twist, something kind of magical that's going to come in. And I think it's, I think it's most interesting when it comes in a situation or setting that's just ordinary. It's just like I was eating a peanut butter jelly sandwich when, you know, uh, there was a knock at the door and, uh, you know, I walked to the door with my peanut butter sandwich and I opened it and it was a small cat sitting on the, that is just something. I can start a story just like that. It was just a cat sitting there and it was nobody else, you know. Can a cat knock on a door? Uh, and so on. I just want the reader to ask questions and be going, what, who? There's got to be somebody hiding behind the bush out there, right? And so on. So it's very simple, very ordinary. And that's what really, well, magic, again, magical realism takes a lot of forms, but it's magical realism. So it's magic within the real, what is in the, in the commonplace. And that's, that's how I like, like to approach it. And I will say this too, when I was a kid, one of the biggest influences on, on me in my writing was uh, Rod Serling and The Twilight Zone. I mean, that was the best thing that happened every week was when that show came on. And I think the spirit of that kind of, of, that kind of writing has just stayed with me. Even my poems have a, a lot of magical elements in them. I'm really glad that you brought up that example of the cat at the door and you want the readers to ask questions because that's what it really felt like to me in reading a number of these stories is that, you know, your characters are kind of lost in their own inner world or their own outer world and the readers just go along on the ride with them and um, we're sometimes we're not exactly sure what's happening just like the characters aren't. And so can you along with these asking these questions, can you talk about writing into this confusion? You know, I'm thinking specifically of like the very, the constantly changing sands in the Mandy and Andy show and just how that, <laughs> that for me, like personifies this totally where I was just like, wow, Andy slash Fred has no idea what's going on and we have no idea what's going on, but this is just like a masquerade ball in everyday life. Well, you know, it's a good, it's a good example for me. And uh, th there was another uh, more contemporary or current uh, influence on, my, on the, the writing of a lot of these stories. Uh, it's the final four or five books of James Tate, the poet James Tate. But those last four or five books are, to me, they're not poems. Now, he called them poems, but to me, they're, they're, they're uh, you know, sort of flash fictions. And they're extremely uh, surreal. I mean, I'm convinced that he no, never knows where any of them are going and, you know, until they get, he gets to the end of them. And they're very imaginative and funny and scary, and they're just wonderful, you know. So I was reading a lot of those, probably too many of them, because I couldn't stop because I just was in love with them. He has a collection of short stories, nowhere near as interesting, where, where he actually thought he was writing short stories. But in these sort of hybrid things that he was doing, he captured a lot of what I'm so interested in. And so I sat down writing kind of in the spirit of those things uh, on for a lot of these stories. For the, the Mandy and Andy show, I literally had no idea 
what was going on, literally, as I was writing. I just, you know, I saw a pattern, possible pattern. So I followed the pattern to see where it would take me. Okay, he meets the first guy on his walk, you know, and then after he gets done with that encounter, he meets another person. And I said, well, I'll do three. I'll three. There's a magic number, three. I'll have him encounter three. So then the third encounter is his, he encounters his wife, but is it his wife? You know, he encounters the woman out there with the, with the yoga instructor. Uh, plus, I was having so much fun writing it. I mean, I laughed just thinking about that story. It was one of those stories where it just, it kept surprising me. Uh, I realized afterwards that it's just sort of a, it's sort of a classic journey, you know, going on a journey kind of story, you know, a quest story. You know, his quest was just to go have a quiet hour in the park, you know, with a couple of beers and a sandwich, right? And that's what he thought his quest was. But then things were happening that started changing almost the chemistry of his brain. It was like, what's happening in the world, you know, today? And then when he meets his wife out there, uh, who, who's, who's got paint all over her face, you know, that he, now his whole world has turned completely upside down. You know, and then the upside down yoga master is almost the perfect uh, symbol of that. Uh, so anyway, I'm not going to talk about the ending of the story unless you want me to. But my approach has been for a long time and I write my poems mostly this way too, to start to begin and see what happens. And sometimes what happens is not so great. But more and more, if you keep operating that way, more and more you trust yourself and you allow things to happen that if you were in your censoring mind, you, you would go, that's stupid. But then later you go, no, that's not stupid. <laughs> that's interesting or strange in a way that captivates me, you know? So that's kind of the process. It's, I think and it's, it's close to the genuine surrealist process. If you read anything about how they work, you know, uh, my process is, is close to that. I was going to say, it's, it's really interesting to hear you talk about finding a pattern in a story that you're writing and just kind of following that pattern, even if you're not quite sure where it's going, that, that feels like, does it, does it feel to you similar to writing, um, like using poetic forms when you write poetry? It's, it sounds kind of similar in a way. Yes, but, but not, but not formal forms, right? but, but what I call, I call the hidden forms by which, I mean, I might, you know, I'll tell you an exercise I created for my students. Um, uh, off of the James Tate stories. Uh, I took one of those uh, poems slash stories uh, that I really liked and I didn't, but I didn't know why I liked it. It was just like, I, you know, it was just really interesting. Uh, so I, I took it and what I did was I, I made it, which I hadn't done with any of them before. I made a serious analysis of the structure of the thing. And I started going through it and I went, oh, you know, so here at this point, he encounters a person who, misinterprets what he says and gets angry. Just, just an example. That's an incident there. And I, I abstract it like that and get it onto abstract language like that. And I found about 10 of those point, points inside the story like that. And I realized, okay, this is a pattern. Because in the end, he comes back and there's a sense of, repeti- of repeating, not identically, but he references what happened earlier, later. So I, ha- I gave that to my students. Uh, as, as, and I said, write a story where these things happen in this order in the story. And it was very interesting to see that they came up with some very unusual things and interesting stories, nothing like the original James Tate story. And uh, so, yes, uh, form in that sense, 
Foreman in the sense of uh, there are there are things going on inside that you hope the reader doesn't even notice necessarily that are creating these little turns and jumps and leaps and and driving the story forward. That's great. Uh, Susie and I both um, both teach writing at, at George Mason too, and mm. um, and I'm I'm always curious to see what um, what writing exercises people are giving to their students and and what comes out of it because they do get get such different and such uh, unusual things from those kind of prompts. Right. Um, I, I wanted to ask a little bit. You know, we've we've talked a little bit about like magical realism, and your collection does definitely kind of teach us to kind of expect the unexpected uh, right. in a lot of these stories. But you also have some stories. And I'm thinking like of, of Echo and Scottness right. that are kind of like a slice of life that feels both very poignant and very jarring at the same time. Right. Um, do you, do you feel like you approach writing those, those more realistic stories in a different way? Well, it's interesting. You're, you're uncovering a secret sort of, not that it's really a secret, but uh, I haven't talked about this before, but some of these stories uh, were written quite a long time ago. And so for example, Echo uh, was written, the, the first draft of it. Now, I, I, I dug it out when I was putting this collection together and rem- I remembered it and dug it out from that from the archives and worked on it. But uh, I, was, I was married for 44 years to a horse trainer. My wife was a professional horse trainer. And for most, most of my adult life, I was around horses and around, we actually lived uh, on the horse farms that, where she worked for a while for many years. Uh, so I was very familiar. So it was just a setting that I just knew. Uh, and I knew horses. And uh, and the two main characters are only in very loose ways patterned, modeled, modeled after me and my wife. But those are the positions that we held. I was the husband of the of the, head, the head horse trainer of the of the woman who was running the, the center. And uh, I, you know, and, and I spent a lot of time down at the farm and worked down there some. So that story, more than maybe any story in the book, is really almost autobiographical. But what happens in some of the things that happen in the story, like what happens with the horse, absolutely happened. But what's going on with the main character is just something that I discovered as I was writing. You know, his alcoholism, if you want to call it that, was something I discovered about the character. It wasn't me, uh, but that was I felt that that gave me something to help drive the story. So, and, and a story like, uh, what, what did you, which was the other one? Um, Scottness. Scottness was one of the ones I, I, I thought of, yeah. That one uh, comes from, not, not as far back as Echo, but s- uh, some years back. Uh, and it's literally based on, on a visit to, uh, in the winter, to a coastal resort area, uh, where it's basically abandoned in the winter. And and, and, you know, and there was there was a little restaurant there. So in, in a sense, there are re, there are autobiographical things. You know, I'm going to be honest, actually, that event happened. Oh, OK, really, the oh. whole thing happened. All of that happened um, just as I just as to the best of my ability to record it. That's what happened. But the ruminations in the main character's head are the part where I'm really inventing. Yeah, I was going to say, because that like that story does, it, it, it doesn't feel like it takes a magical turn, but but the kind of connection that that the character feels with the woman later right. um, that does feel like it's sort of bordering on that territory. So that, that's interesting to see that it was yeah. it was something real. And then and then some of that gets invented later. Yeah. Yeah. I like to stay on the borders if I can, at least on the border of magical. <laughs> 
I'm glad we we found out your secret because I mean this is kind of leading to to our last question here about your career and you you know you've been publishing for over 20 years and you've already started to mention some of the changes that you've seen like the strong preference in the publishing world for for really thematically organized collections and things like that and it seems like your own writing journey has has changed like writing echo years ago versus maybe some of the more some of the newer stuff um right. so have, are there any other things that have really changed um, that you've noticed? And are there any lessons you would tell your younger self after having gone through this, this publishing and writing journey? Well, in terms of the business of, of being a writer, things have changed a lot. For example, my first book when it was published, gosh, this was be 1989. My first book uh, of poems, The Man Who Grew Silent. Even in that, if you read that book and that, if you read that poem, I mean, that's magical realism just right in the heart of magical realism. Uh, but those that, you know, I was, you know, I don't, it's hard to give advice because so much of what happened for me was luck, especially like at that moment in 19, maybe it was 1988 when I met the publisher who published that book. Up until that point, I was, now that was, I was, oh, 40. Up until that point, I'd been writing and writing and writing and writing and writing, but I wasn't very good. And only slowly was I accumulating good enough poems. And that, and right at the moment that I finally had a collection of enough, really, a good enough of good poems, and it took me, I, I'd started writing this book when I was 20. So it had taken me 20 years to write that first book. And right at that point, here comes a publisher. And I meet him at a party. And, you know, this was in Columbia, South Carolina, where I lived. And, uh, you know, it was a party and mostly other writerly writers and artists and so on were in the party. And I don't know, I'm just drinking a beer and talking to somebody. And this fellow walks up to me and introduces himself. His name is Warren Schlesinger, a really fine man. And uh, he was the, uh, in the editor of this small press called the Bench Press. He said, you know, I just moved here. I was living, I was teaching at Swarthmore and I just, we just moved down to this part of the country. And um, I've been publishing writers um, from the Northeast and said, I want to publish somebody from here. And so-and-so uh, -so over here told me you had a manuscript and uh, would you let me see it? And I said, would I let you see it? <laughs> I said, yes, of course. And that was every it. writer's so, dream. <laughs> it was like, uh, is this the way it works? And so often it is apparently. Uh, so I guess the lesson in that story is to go to writers, go to parties where there, <laughs> <laughs> where there are writers and publishers, you know, and uh, in, in, in a sense, that's true. There, there is this thing that Randall Jarrell, who was a, a great American poet uh, and critic, he, he wrote uh, a review of one of Robert Frost's books. Maybe it was a review of, of Frost at the, towards the, at the end of his career. And he was talking about Frost had more truly great poems than most really great poets even have. More individually great poems than almost any other poet that he could think of. And he just, he said, well, what Frost, the way that could happen is that it's like you want to, you want to, so you want to, uh, if you want to be struck by lightning, if you want to be struck by lightning, you have to go out into a field in a storm. And he said Frost kept himself out in that field in the storm, you know. And Maybe that is sort of the lesson for your students is you got to keep keep going back to the work and and, and stick it. with it. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. 
Thank you so much, Jim. It's been great talking with you today. Oh, I've enjoyed it a lot. I've enjoyed it very much. Very, very nice to meet you both too. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on.